This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Who's Afraid of the Antichrist and the Antichrist," was recorded at Wellspring Church on December fifteenth, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is First John chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty-seven. Today's scripture reading is First John chapter two, verses eighteen through twenty-seven. The Lord's word reads. <clears throat> Children, it is the last hour, as you know, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be more plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. <clears throat> and this is the promise that He has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you to abide in Him, that's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This is the season that we sing a lot about Christ, and if you are familiar with many of the Christmas hymns, you know that that name, that title, is in many of our songs. Silent night. Holy night, Christ the Savior is born. I don't know if you realize this. I believe some of you do, but some might not. Is that the word Christ is not Jesus' last name? Just in case you didn't know, Christ literally comes from the Greek word Christos, and it means anointed one, chosen one, one who has been chosen by God, specifically when it refers to Jesus. For the purpose of doing that which God wills, and so when we see the name Jesus Christ, we're seeing Jesus and who He is and what He has done. That's what we refer to when we say Jesus Christ. And so the opposite of that, Antichristos, is doing the opposite or proposing the opposite. Of what we believe Jesus to be, which is to be the Savior. I think when we think of this phrase "antichrist" or "the antichrists," we might have this idea or a picture of who is the antichrist. What are we referring to? And I I want to touch on that because I think this text both is important in dispelling some of our ideas of who is the antichrist, as well as understanding. Who is the Christ, the true Christ, and why do we sing about him, especially in this season? So I'm going to look at first who is 
the Antichrist, a specific Antichrist. Second is look at the small letter A and the plural of it. Who are the Antichrists? And then who is the Christ? So first, we're going to look at the, the Antichrist. And John refers to this person in different verses. And I'm not going to spend most of the time here, but really on the second part. But the fact of the matter is, is that when people think about the Antichrist, it's the one that sort of gets all the press. All the attention goes on this person. History has been filled with many different people that some think is has the Antichrist has come. And in your mind, you might have an idea of what this Antichrist is. History has thought of the Antichrist as Antiochus Epiphanes. It was a Roman emperor during the time um, sort of closer to the time of the beginnings of the Roman Empire. Some have thought that the Pope is the Antichrist. Or maybe it's Hitler or Stalin. Or maybe it's a religious figure like Joseph Smith or Reverend Moon. Some have thought that the Antichrist is Barack Obama or Donald Trump. So here's the question is, if there are so many candidates for who is the Antichrist, it makes you really ask the question, how do you know when the Antichrist does come? This passage gives us a few ideas of how do we determine the Antichrist, the person, the Antichrist. Because one, first, it is a person. It's a specific person. The Antichrist, as John tells us, is not an organization or a country or a council. It is a real-life historical individual who will come. Secondly, we know, according to Revelation 13, that this person is very powerful. According to Revelation 13, this person is going to have great political power as well as religious powers. In some way, they're going to use that political and religious power to persecute the church very heavily. And thirdly, we know that this is a, a prophesied person. John says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So John is preaching and proclaiming it, as well as most of the apostles. We know that this is a specific person who is talked about, who is prophesied. And so therefore, because the Bible already lays it out that this person is coming, we shouldn't be surprised by this person coming. We actually shouldn't be surprised that there is a persecution of the church. And the Bible is clear that He's not a legend or a myth. He will come. The, there are many references to the Antichrist. I, again, this isn't really a, a, a sermon all about the specific Antichrist, but you're curious. It's in Second Thessalonians 2. Daniel 7 through 11 talks about this person. Peter refers to him in Second Peter chapters 2 and 3. So what we do know is the Bible refers to this person as a true historical figure that there will come a day when this person will draw many away from Christ, if possible, and to himself, and he will do all that he can to destroy the church. It is an individual person, but to focus on the individual, I think, is to miss the point of what John is trying to warn us of. Because as significant as this person is, John's second point is that there actually have already been many small-a antichrists who have come who have been raised in the church, who are leaders in the church, and who have gone out from the church. So we're going to look specifically at these people because actually they are past 
present and future. They're ongoing and they're regular even in our midst. So we look at verses 18 through 21 and in it are the characteristics of antichrists. People who are antichrist-like. First to note is that they're members of the church. They went out from us. And that's an incredibly sobering idea. That there are people in the church, in our midst, or all around churches, all across this world, throughout history, who have professed that they believe in Jesus Christ. They have given testimonies of faith. They were perhaps emotive and expressive about their faith. They have good deeds behind them. They were from us. So it's pretty clear that we're not talking about this outside group of people attacking the church. They're from within. And they looked no different than anyone else. They were just as faithful looking as everybody else. That's one characteristic. Secondly is that they were leaders. By definition, they were not people on the periphery because you wouldn't call an antichrist, an opposite Christ, someone who is just sort of coming in, not really being noticed, and then leaving. They are significant enough that John describes these people as antichrist. And so they are people of influence. They're people who were perhaps once leaders of the church, pastors, elders, people well thought of by the church. They knew the Bible. They knew doctrine. They were founders of the church. They were personable. They were intelligent. They were articulate. They were people who were perhaps had high social position had jobs that were lofty and lofty status, wealthy. They could have seemed more, much more filled with theological knowledge than anyone else. So recognize that we're not talking about the periphery. We're talking about the core. Thirdly is, and this is perhaps the most important, is that they were deniers. John says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is really the crux of it all, is that they denied Jesus as the Christ. So what does that mean? What are we referring to when you do that? Again, remember that the Christ is a title. It's a designation. And it's given by the Bible, by God himself, to say that this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. And he is the anointed one. I've chosen him. I've called him out. And he is the one who's going to save. And so when you deny Jesus is the Christ, you're denying Jesus as Savior, as Lord. You basically don't believe he is a Savior. And when you think about it and you stop and reflect on that, it's a, it's an incredibly slippery slope because that person who is a leader in the church as they grow in position and influence, perhaps, and even power and spiritual authority, suddenly they start thinking that, well, I built the church. It's by my strength, by my strategies, by my plans. And slowly but surely, you can see that this person doesn't rely on Christ, but rather there's an internal boasting, perhaps even an external boasting. You actually start thinking, you don't need a savior. And 
You can say you need a savior, but your actions, your heart, it actually reveals you don't need a savior. Deep down inside, when you examine yourself, you believe that others need help, but not you. And so others are deserving of judgment, but not you. What are some ways that we can see this happening? What are some tests to see if this is me? Is this my heart? First is reliance. This was their primary heart. They were self-reliant. And it is a dangerous, slippery slope. How do we know we have a self-reliant heart? We can ask this question. What do you rely on to shape you other than Jesus? Does your good moral family, for example, help you to define your identity, who you are, the way your children behave? Does your job If you were to get a demotion or a layoff, would you suddenly stumble to struggle with your worthiness? That you are actually worthless. It's one of the challenges of of retirement is someone who has worked their whole life gaining certain a, a certain sense of status and reputation. And suddenly when that's stripped away, then we start thinking, who am I? So we might have all these crisis points, midlife crisis, early on, we're trying to determine our career path. And then slowly as the job is taken away and now all we get to do is play golf and go on cruises all the time, we start might define ourselves, who am I? What is my life about? That is a question that we have to ask, who am I relying upon to identify who I am? Maybe if you're a, a young parent, you're, you have a child, you go out to a restaurant, Your child takes the glass cup and throws it onto the floor, sprawls onto the floor and starts pounding their fists on the ground and you see everyone staring at you. And the first thought that comes to your mind is they all think I am the worst parent. I feel miserable. That defining moment, those defining moments are little moments that sort of compile into a place that we so easily get to a place of thinking that's who I am. You know, in this season of political turmoil, especially next year in 2020 in the election, we're going to see it more and more, just all the political ads. And suddenly, maybe we start thinking, my political affiliation defines me. And that is who I am. And suddenly, when our world and our nation is so divided, we start seeing that person as they're the other side. This is my side. Maybe it's we're in America and automatically there's this assumption that all Americans are Christians. And then you hear about a person who comes from a refugee status from Syria and you might say, well, they're, they're obviously don't know who Christ is, so therefore they're the evil one. You see, it's, it's a defining of who we are based on some sort of identity, a reliance on that. Another real slippery slope is the reliance of even in a church context to think that some sort of identity in the church defines who you are. Perhaps it's, well, if my son or daughter or if I go to a youth group, then that's how they're going to, I'm going to know that they are truly a Christian. Or maybe you yourself have had the warm fuzzies when you were young and you thought, oh, I have this nostalgic memory. When I was in youth group, 
I've experienced this, and so therefore I need to have my kids in that exact same type of environment. That sort of filters on from children's ministry to singles, young adults. Somehow we think that a reliance on something other than Christ himself defines who we are, saves us, makes us whole. My friends, dare I say this, but that is a little bit a semblance of the Antichrist heart. It's the heart that says, I don't need Christ. I need this to save me. And it could be Christ-looking things without actually being Christ himself. Deep down, we're not relying on him. And that's a danger. Because we have to ask the question, how does this leader get to a place where they leave the church and say, I don't need Christ? It starts here. You rely on someone other than Jesus, some thing, some system, even a Christian system to define who you are. Second is ritualism. It's the idea that we do something and that sanctifies us or cleanses us or somehow spiritually protects us from evil. I was dropping off one of my daughters somewhere and we were driving by and uh, there was a house and the house had all sorts of ornaments around it, around the door. And she had explained to me and she knew this is that there was a Hindu family that was living there and basically those ornaments and those pictures and colors all were meant to sort of ward off evil spirits. Because Hinduism at the core is this incredible fear of bad karma. And the idea behind it is that you have to have good karma to sort of counterbalance all the bad karma. And all these different images and objects are meant to ward off the bad karma, the evil spirits. You know, lest we are quick to judge the Hindu, might I say that Christians also have that same idea, whether we might realize it or not. Every Sunday we have communion. There's a reason why when myself or one of the elders, what we do what we call fence the table. We say, you know, if you do not trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we ask that you not come forward and take this bread and this wine because it's a ritual to you if you just eat it and you don't actually believe in Christ. The reason why we give that warning is that there's this idea that somehow that bread, which is a cracker, you know, it's unleavened bread, and wine or grape juice, that somehow if I take this and I drink it, it's going to protect me for the week. And that type of thinking is so antithetical to the gospel that it's anti-Christ-like. It's the idea that something you do actually cleanses you and protects you rather than the relationship with the only one who actually cleanses you and protects you. And so to do the opposite, which is to take the bread and the wine and somehow think that, well, if I eat this, I'm going to have some sort of spiritual magic charm that's going to be over me. And so this week, God will love me more. That's antichrist-like. Similarly, you can read the Bible and say, okay, I need to have my quiet time today because that's going to protect my day. I'm going to be a lot more prosperous. I'm going to actually have good things happen to me. And suddenly we take what is supposed to be a relationship and turn it into 
not only a ritual, but a magic charm. And we say, I can get through this one day with both God blessing me, as well as God not punishing me for not doing this. When I was young, I heard a speaker tell of the time where she was having her quiet times and she was saying every day she spent time with the Lord except for one day. And on that one day, she got into a car accident. And so she, I was in high school, or I, was, I think I was a freshman in college, and everyone sat there and thought, well, I need to have my quiet time. I need to read the Bible every day because I'm going to get into a car. Something bad's going to happen to me. My friends, that's a, that's an antichrist type of heart. It's a ritualism that says to follow Christ is about putting a magic protection over me so that I can either prosper or not be harmed. And that makes me think that I don't actually need Jesus. What I need is the magical powers of Jesus. Thirdly, the way that we know that we have this denying heart of Jesus as the Christ is that we have to have an awareness Christians are always, must seek to be aware of their own conditions, of their hearts. They actually need to, we need to believe that we need rescue. When John Newton said, I am a great sinner, but Jesus Christ is a great savior. It's an important reminder of that. You need both. You need to know that you're the reason why Jesus went to the cross. But you also need to know that Jesus went to the cross to rescue you from that sin and that you're not meant to be stuck in that sin forever. And so Paul, if you look at the Apostle Paul, throughout the book of Acts, he does something that is quite startling. Every time he gets in front of someone who is great, such as Felix, the governor, or Festus, Herod, he tells the story of how bad he was, like why he was... He was such a persecutor of the church. He always tells that story. And you think, if you were Paul, would you want to tell everyone the worst part of your life as a Christian? The answer to that should be yes. Because you want to both tell the world of how much you know that your salvation is not dependent on you, as well as you need to tell yourself that. Because if we don't tell ourselves that, we start thinking, actually, you know, I'm the one who built this church. I'm such a great orator, and I'm so articulate, and I can argue with the philosophers of the age. We start believing that. We start thinking that that's exactly who I am, and we don't need rescue. We don't need salvation. Salvation is for everyone else, but not for me. On Sundays, during this time, many a person has come up to me afterward and said, you know, I was so thankful you preached that sermon for my husband, my wife, my friend. You know, that sermon was for that person right there. I was looking right at them. And it's so great that you do, that you think that way. It's wonderful. But if we're stuck there and we never really say, that's for me. Not only is it, not only did that person need to hear it, I need to, needed to hear it. Because if I'm only at the, that person needs to hear it part, and we're in danger of being an antichrist. As if to say, I don't need Jesus. That person needs him, but not me. Everything about me is wonderful. I actually never morally need Christ. And so, we have to be a people who are looking to the Christ. The anointed one. The chosen one for me. To save me from my wretchedness. From my sin. 
Otherwise, if you're not there regularly doing that, and it can't be just once, it has to be regular, then one day you too will leave the church disappointed. I'm not talking about Wellspring. I'm talking about the church. You will leave the church disappointed because when Jesus calls you to lay down your life, to lay everything at his feet, you'll say, I can't do that. That's what John referred to last week as the pride of life, the arrogance of our own souls that say, I don't need him. At the core of my being, I do not need him at all. Maybe a scary part of it all as well is that we won't leave the church. We'll actually just be there and just think my ritualism, my moralism is good enough. And so there are many who attend churches all around the world anonymously coming for service and then quietly leaving afterward because in their mind as long as I go to worship on Sunday I don't need to be involved I don't need to be a member I don't need to be accountable I don't need to submit all I need to do is just put in my just clock in clock out and I tell you that is the bane of the American church is that there are too many people who think clocking in and clocking out of church is good enough for God. That is an antichrist heart. And if you're in that state today, and if you are here clocking in and clocking out, my friend, you're in danger. And you need to know that Christ wants not just more of you. He wants to show you greater joy, far greater, infinite more than what you are experiencing. Here's the thing is that no one is immune from this heart. No one, not a single person in this room is immune from an antichrist heart to being an antichrist. I am not immune from it. If I were to retire and go to spend the rest of my life floating around from church to church and uh, deciding, well, I've done my due. You know, I've put up with enough challenges. And so therefore, I think I'm just going to, I need to just relax now. I need to decide. Everyone needs to serve me because I've served everybody else. So I think I'm going to just go sit in the back, listen to a couple of nice sermons, and decide this is good enough. If that's the case, then I am an antichrist. An antichrist. Because it means that I don't need a savior. I just needed a ritual. The ritual of ministry. And I tell you that because... It is so easy to forget our desperate need for Christ. And that means for his church. We need each other. We need to be invested into each other, actually aware of the conditions of our hearts and recognizing that every one of us, like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, can be disqualified from the prize. Even after preaching to other people, if we're not aware, I too can be an antichrist. Look at the results of the Antichrist. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had not, if, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are, uh, they all are not of us. If we look at that, there's a couple of results. There's probably more, but we'll list two. There's broken fellowship. The more you, and, and that should make complete sense. The more you get consumed by your own self-reliance, self-desire, um, trying to do things your own way, independence from other people, well then, the last thing you are open to is 
care and consideration for others. You're not open to what the Savior asks you to do, which is when you don't feel like it, to serve other people. When you don't feel like worship, you delight in Him. You join with God's people. There is also a feeling of independence. I can do things my own way. I can worship alone in my home with my family. I don't need to be in the context of people because people are hard. That's the thing about worshiping alone. It's great because you don't actually have to deal with people. But God uses his church to show us we actually need Jesus. When you're by yourself, guess what? You don't need Jesus because... You get to do it however you want. I was reading a book, and it was talking about how um, when you're single, whether you're a man or a woman, you go into that person's house, and you can tell, even if you didn't know whether they were married or not, whether they're married or not. Because in that place, there are no compromises. Meaning there's no compromise of decor or anything. There's no suddenly a gigantic TV for someone to watch ESPN all day or... There are no flowers and around or it's everything's, there's certain color schemes that marriage inherently requires some level of give and take and compromise of saying, you know what, decorate it that way because that's what you want. And when you're alone, you get to do whatever you want. Everything seems right. Worship with God's people reminds us that wait a second, they don't see things the way I do and I have to wrestle with my own soul. And so therefore, I have to realize that I'm angry for a reason or I'm frustrated and that deals with me and not me and that person first, but me and the Lord. That's what community does. But when you reconcile and work through that and see the glories of Christ through that, then the joy of the Lord is far greater than if you were ever alone. This person went out from us. Notice they were not forced out. They decided to go out. They were not expelled. They would, it says, John says, they would have continued with us. It was their own attitudes and their own responses that revealed the truth of their hearts. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Their lack of faith, their lack of trust in Jesus as their only hope and identity Cause them to go their own way. And that led to broken fellowship. Next is there's confusion. Verses 21 through 22. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? John reminds the church that they know the truth. They know they need Christ. They know they need a Savior. But it is Satan and sin that keeps us from believing that we need Jesus and we need him together. And so self-deception controls. And whether we're intentional about it or not, there's confusion and division in the church. There's a better way. There always is. The Bible always lays it out for us. And the better way in this instance is not the Antichrist, but that whom is true, which is Christ himself. John's great concern is not that we have a fear of the Antichrist or Antichrist, but instead that we will know the true Christ. It's the fact that we, we have to understand him and know him and spend our time knowing him. 
And just like treasury agents, agents who spend all their time looking at the true dollar, the true currency, so that they can tell counterfeits apart, so too the Christian looks and examines and studies and understands that which is true, the true Christ. And once you know him, that which is true, it's very easy to determine then that which is false. John doesn't want us to be, simply be aware of counterfeits and antichrists. He wants us to know who is true. Paul says the same thing to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 when he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come. Where will they come? In among you. So within. The wolves come from within, not outside. Don't worry. The, the outside ones are bad, but the inside ones are far worse not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise from among you. Your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. That's where Antichrist come from. Which is why in verses 20 and 24 to 25 and verse 27, John wraps up this chapter by reminding us that we need not be afraid of the Antichrist and even Antichrist, because of the Christ. I'm going to read verse 24. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. Verse 20 there. And you all have knowledge. And then verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you, sh you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And in this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught, you abide in him. There's a lot to unpack there, but we're going to look at a couple of things. First, the idea of anointing, the anointing that you receive. The word anointing is the word Christmas. It's actually a, a derivative of the word Christos. It's the same idea. It's, you know, in, in Christ, when you believe in Jesus, you have the very thing, which is the person of Christ through the Holy Spirit, that is going to ward off and help you to discern any antichrist. That is to say that when you are a Christian, you are reliant on Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. You need Jesus. You know you need rescue. You know that you falter and fail regularly. And you know that Christ has given his life for you so that, as we sang about earlier, as Sam pointed out, you are faultless. You are faulty, and yet in Christ you are faultless. You have an anointing, a Christ-likeness about you. And that is not a moral trait. It's actually an objective, historical, legal trait. It's that God has done the work to save you by giving you his righteousness, Christ's righteousness. So you really are a Christian. You have an anointing in you that will never fade, will never fail, no, will never falter, because it is based solely on the fact that Jesus died for you. That resides with you forever. And to make that so firm, all you need to do is just take those words and then circle how many times the word abide comes up. It is the one word that John uses more than any other gospel writer. The word abide, remain. 
That is to say that that anointing, that work of Christ to make you faultless, dependent on Him, is something that rests with you over and over and over again. It dwells, it remains, it never leaves you. And you need not be afraid that that's going to come and go based on whether you've had a good day or a bad day. Whether you have children who obey you or are absolutely rebellious. Whether you have a certain career or not. Whether you have, are sick or whether you are healthy. Whether you're serving in the church or not. The abiding work of Christ is what you need to guard you from being an antichrist. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The very name of Jesus, when Jesus was born, do you remember we sing a lot about the Emmanuel? Emmanuel just means God with us. This word abiding, God with us, God never leaving us, God God never forsaking us in Christ, that's the message of the Bible. And you and I, In this season, why we just constantly go back to what Christ has done for us is that we know this to be true. It wards off. This is the protection that we have. Not communion and taking some sort of bread and wine and drinking it. Not being in a youth group. Not sitting at a church in the back on Sunday every week. It is Christ and Christ alone. When Charles Wesley, we sang a hymn called Heart the Herald Angels Sing. And one thing we have to remember is that all of our Christmas hymns, the best ones are the ones that actually say these words to us. The same words that we're seeing in First John. Look at what it says. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. Well, how's that happen? God sent his son to reconcile us to himself. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ, the Christ. No more antichrists, the Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. You see, for a song like that and for the Bible and for the New Testament, for John, it's to say that there is always going to be antichrists as long as we're in this world, but there is a far more powerful antidote, which is the Christ. The Antichrist says, you don't need a Savior. You're the Savior. Those who are in Christ, Christians, say, I need a Savior. I am broken, but I have Christ. Antichrists do not want the chosen one who took our sins, bore them, was punished on a on a cross for our sins. But Christians, those who believe in Christ, who have the Christ, say, I've been rescued, I've been reconciled. As John Wesley says, because of that, we need not be afraid. No, we, need, we, we need not be af- discouraged that Christ, the newborn King, is born to reconcile us. Glory to Him. So I hope as we sing, do not sing because some it's what we call you to do. You're morally obligated to do that as a Christian. Do not take communion because of that. Do not come and serve because of that. Do not come to church because of that. Instead, come because Christ, the newborn King, has come to reconcile you to himself, to the Father. And in light of that truth, 
there's joy. That's what's going to protect you forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, in this season of remembering the work of your Son that began with the Word becoming flesh, your Son, God the Son, taking on the very form of us, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. It began in a manger, in a place of humility, in a physical reminder that we are humbled before you. And when those magi came, they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh to consider that myrrh, the oil that would only anoints for death, the dead body. Even at the very beginning, those very gifts that were given to Jesus would be to point to a future of sorrows. Help us, O Lord, to see that we are the cause of those sorrows. But also help us to remember that that's why Jesus came. He came to free us from sorrow because he bore it. He came to free us from anger because he bore that anger on himself. He came to free us from covetousness, self-centeredness, self-reliance. May we see this time, this response, this season, not just in communion, but in this season of Christmas trees, and Christmas carols, parties, gift-giving, family dinners. And we not simply pass by the cross, but to remember that you have provided all of that for us. We worship you, O Lord. Christ, the Savior, is born. Amen.